Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. I have a crypto educational update um, based on my own experience and trying to share some of this knowledge out. Hopefully, we'll help people that don't either you're new to it or you're not new to it and you're trying to figure out what the heck's going on. So this one's going to deal with gas fees, which is mostly on the Ethereum side, network fees, miner fees. They're all kind of related. So I'm going to talk about these different fees and what's ultimately happening under the hood because the the reason it's, it's valuable to know this is that it will affect your trade strategy because with stock, remember there used to be this idea of commissions. So you would want to buy 500 shares of Toyota and then they would charge you a commission. And usually it's like a dollar or two dollars. Well, when Robinhood came along, and Robinhood basically had no commissions to trade. What it did is it spurred all these other organizations like Schwab and Fidelity and so on to stop charging the commission fee because at least for that type of trade to retain customers and make sure they didn't jump ship. So now you can basically set up a brokerage account anywhere and there's it's unlikely you're gonna have some fees to just do simple stock trades. Now, when you get into the advanced trading, you're talking options and and splits and these other concepts that are way advanced. We're talking where you have a high risk, high profit potential. The fees are still in place. Well, in the crypto world, there are also this concept of fees, but they are different fees for different reasons. And it's important that you understand the different fees when you're starting and as you're trading, because you have to, in order to wrap your head around it, you have to know where your crypto is and where you want it to be and why because it will affect what fees you do or don't incur so in order to break this down i've got to step you through to some of the structure because it's important you understand where the fees are coming from and i don't want to start with the fees because it'll kind of confuse you so let's start with the the repository first there are primarily three main types of repositories for your crypto when you get started. You can have a wallet, which is generally decentralized, as they refer to it, DeFi, decentralized finance. You can have it in an exchange wallet, and an exchange wallet basically says that the exchange is storing it on your behalf, just like a Fidelity or a Schwab. However, the exchange wallet is not really, quote, yours in the sense that they can lock it whenever they feel like it. They can block your access to the money. They can block your access to trade. They can do whatever they want to do because they are the custodian of your funds. And so they have, within their terms and conditions, if you read it, they can block you out of things at their whim. Usually it's because of certain, usually faulty fraud detection scheme. Automated. The third is a hardware wallet or referred to generally as cold storage, where the difference between your DeFi wallet and a hardware wallet is a DeFi wallet still has to connect to the internet in order to understand what's the current price of things so that it can give you visibility if you want to go exchange and trade. Whereas a hardware wallet is purely for storage and monitoring of the current value of your asset. And so it needs to synchronize every period, periodic basis in order to understand prices, but it doesn't need to say persistently connected. And it usually will do it through either Bluetooth or just plugging it in and synchronizing it. Now, 
with a hardware wallet, obviously because it's so-called cold storage and it's offline, that means you cannot purchase any crypto with it. It's assumed that you are purchasing it from something else and you are sending it to the hardware wallet's address. The hardware wallet's address is basically a replica, a copy of the actual address that's on blockchain. So it's not that you're taking and storing your tokens offline, simply that this device is aware of your stake by synchronizing with the blockchain's address to understand what the current value of it is. What does that mean for you? It means that if you choose to go the hardware wallet route, you have to have some device that's able to help it synchronize up to the blockchain. More commonly, that's a computer. In certain cases, it might be your phone. But the point is you're dependent on something else. The nice thing about a hardware wallet is it's hard to breach it because although your address is up in the blockchain and there's still the it's just a copy of the blockchain's address in order to be able to do trading against this you would have to have had certain elements of security from the hardware token that the perpetrator wouldn't have had and it's hard to get them because it's presumably on your person or in a safe or whatever and that means they have to rob your house and then have to know what they're looking for so it have to be an inside job and so you're creating this security by obscurity principle where if you don't know it's there, you don't know to steal it. With a software DeFi wallet, it is connecting to the internet to understand price, the current price of the token. It's also connecting to the internet to understand what's going on with your blockchain. And a software wallet can do exchanges, trades of coins. That's from coin A to coin B, whether that's Ethereum to you know, Cardano or Cardano to SOL, Solana, or you want to buy Doge. And so you buy Doge from Ethereum or you buy Doge from Bitcoin. This is, this is trading is what you're doing. So the software wallet is linking to an exchange. The exchanges, there's Uniswap, there's ShibaSwap, there's SushiSwap, there's PancakeSwap, there's OneLink. There's tons of these exchanges and all they're doing is creating a liquidity pool, which is making coins available to support this transaction. When it's a an exchange wallet, you're going straight to the exchange and you're storing straight in the exchange and you're giving the exchange custodial rights to your stake. Why would you do such a thing? Because if you give them custodial rights, it simplifies the purchase and sale, the transacting of coins when you want to. That means it's easier to buy them. It's easier to sell them. It's easier to trade them because you're straight on the exchange. You're not having to go from a wallet and then send it to an exchange who then does the trade and then sends it back to your wallet. You're not having to go to your hardware wallet, plug it into a thing, synchronize the thing and then do a trade and then add it to the wallet and then synchronize it again and then unplug it. So you're, you're saving steps by going straight to the exchange. The downside, of course, is that you lose custodial certain custodial rights in that they can lock you out of it whenever they please. For the most part, your funds are reasonably safe. However, we saw with GameStop, Robinhood was perfectly happy to block all trades when the price skyrocketed to keep people from major profits because they essentially ran out of money. They weren't able to pay what people were going to be able to make. And so they put a halt on it. Robinhood did, and so did many others. When you put it in an exchange, that gives them the ability to do that with your crypto if they determine, hey, we don't have the liquidity to pay this, so we're going to put a block on things, or 
our automated robot determined that there's potential fraud. And so we're going to block it until you send us more documents to prove we are and all this nonsense. So there's pros and cons to all three of these, as I've detailed. Now, once you wrap your head around the three types, primary types of storing your crypto. Now let's talk about the fees. The first fee that's most common that applies, and it's mostly for the exchange, is the exchange fee itself. This is simply a fee for the exchange to do a transaction where they're passing a cost back to you. For the most part, this is only going to apply when you're going to a stable coin or from a stable coin. Why? Because when it's a stable coin, a stable coin has a different treatment than a normal trade. It's not the same as trading Doge for Shib or Shib for Saitama or Saitama for Kiana or Kiana for Kishu or Kishu for Solana. It's There's a very specific financial transaction that has to happen when you are going to or from a stable coin. That's most commonly where you're going to see a an exchange fee. And that exchange fee is not large. You're usually talking about two bucks or three bucks or whatever it is. It's usually a fraction of the total transaction, but with thresholds. So you might have, you know, up to a thousand dollars is two dollars and so on. That's when you're going straight to the exchange because your coins are there and you're going to a stable coin. You're going to see this fee almost always. The, the exception to this is your Uniswaps, Sushi Swaps, etc. Don't charge an exchange fee because of the way that other fees work with them. And I'll get to that in a second. But when I say exchange here, I'm referring to your Robinhoods, your Coinbases, your Binances, your L Banks that are true exchanges in the sense that they are selling, not trans, not trading from the blockchain. They are selling you stock that they already have. So it's a financial transaction, if that makes any sense. The second fee is referred to a network fee. Now, people tend to confuse network fee and minor fees. They're actually similar but different. A network fee is a fee that is imposed in the contract for the type of network that you're transacting. So if you're talking Solana, it has its own network. Cardano has its own network. Bitcoin is not on a network, but it has network fees that are attributable to Bitcoin. Ethereum has its own network fees that are based on the Ethereum network, ERC-20 tokens. And then Binance has its own. So this fee is simply a, usually it's flat, but sometimes it varies, a fee that's imposed by the contract of the network for the token that you're applying. You say, well, how would I know what that fee is going in? You don't. That's the, that's the first thing you want to watch out for is you're not going to know until you go and try to transact whether there's a fee or not, and if there is, how much that fee is. You have to do the transaction, and then you'll get a quote, and it will make let you decide if you want to incur that fee or not. If it's something like Cardano, for example, Cardano generally is going to be three tokens worth, three coins worth of Cardano, or four coins worth. It's very small. It's usually some pennies or about some dollars. When you get to Ethereum, and I'll get to this in a second, Ethereum tends to fluctuate more than the others because... It is a percentage of the price of the coin at the time that you do this transaction. Obviously, if you've been following Ethereum, you know that it's been fluctuating anywhere between $2,000 and $3,700 per coin. So that means that your network fee could be anything, and you're just not going to know until you go in and try to do the transaction. The third, then, is minor fees. 
The reason I say that they're similar is that they, it is imposed by the contract. However, it is wholly variable, variable because it is paid to the people who are mining the coins. There's tons of people across the globe who mine coins, making them available, but also their, their computer processing power makes all the transactions happen. So when you go and you say, I want to buy 100 Solana, there's a computer that eventually will run across that quote job and will execute it for you. Without this processing power, none of the transactions work, thus crypto doesn't work. So in the brain of the people who designed all this, they said, we need to compensate these people as an incentive for them to do this work because it's what keeps everything running. They're not going to do it out of the kindness of their heart. So there's this whole elaborate structure of compensation around mining, which I'm not going to get into the details. Just suffice it to say that the mining fees, miners fees are used in order to support what you're trying to do. It's basically compensation for the hardware that's necessary to do your task. What throws people is that this fee could be anywhere right now from $20 to $1,500. I know that freaks you out and it should. The reason it's so wide is because it's based on the complexity of the job as far as the, the hardware that's going to do the work and the task and what it takes in the blockchain to make it happen. You're not going to know going in if it's a complex job or not until you try. The miner's fee only applies if you're not going directly through an exchange like a Coinbase or Robinhood. However, Coinbase and Robinhood might pass a miner's fee along if you're doing a transaction where they know that they're going to need to recoup what it is that's, that's moving. So if you were to take your coins and send them to Coinbase Wallet, it's owned by the same company, but they're going to nail you with miner's fees. Why? Because to do that transaction, it is a completely different address in the blockchain, which means a miner has to do the work to get it over there. It's not just Coinbase themselves doing the task. So they're going to pass that miner's fee back to you, and you're not going to get much of a discount on it. So you need to be aware of the miner's fee pretty much any time you're going from one address to another, essentially. So if you have a wallet, a software wallet, DeFi wallet, and you have an exchange wallet with Coinbase, anytime you transact between those two, you're going to get hit with a fee fundamentally. The only exception to that rule would be if it's a token where the contract does not have a, a fee or doesn't have a significant fee. Again, Cardano is very cheap and others are cheap. For the most part, all of them have some measure of fee you're going to expect to pay to recoup and compensate people doing the work. By and large, the large fees are attributable to Ethereum. Bitcoin has some pretty decent sized fees, but Ethereum is the worst of the offenders. There's a process right now to try to upgrade it, to get away from what they believe is causing those fees. But for right now, you're going to get hit with the miners fee. I will tell you that the miners fee is time sensitive, which means that it works on time zones. And for the most part, it's going to be early crack of dawn morning. I'm talking at a point that you're probably asleep. You're going to see the lowest fees. And then at points that you're wide awake, you're going to see the highest fees, just so you know that. The last fee that I'll talk about is when you go to an exchange, not Coinbase, Robinhood, but an other exchange like Uniswap, SushiSwap, so on. They need to, if you want to transact with them, certain coins and tokens, they need to have access to be able to do it for you. You have to give them rights to do it. That's a 
whole different technological process that has to happen. As a result, there's a separate transaction that takes place and separate miners fees, but I call it out as separate types of fees because they're not fees that you're incurring to get anything. They're fees you're incurring to allow you to get something. So it's a, kind of a double dip. With this, you'll get told when you go to Uniswap or whichever, hey, I need access to your Saitama or I need access to your SHIB or I need access to your Kishu. And it's going to throw you because the transaction you tried to do was a trade from Kishu to Ethereum because you're cashing out. And so it'll mislead you because you're thinking, okay, great. It charges a miner's fee. The miner's fee is probably going to be somewhere between 20 and 40 bucks. You're like, great, that's a deal. Then you go ahead and do it and then nothing happens. You just, your Ethereum gets subtracted, but nothing else happens. Actually, what had happened under the hood, and it doesn't tell you, is that it has now, quote, authorized your exchange to get funds from your wallet to do the transaction you want to do, which means you now need to go back in and execute that same request again. And now it will give you a different minor fee. And it'll be, you know, 100 bucks, 120 bucks. And you're going to say, why is it charging me $100? I just paid you $40. It's because the first one was just to authorize the funds. The second one is to do the work. You have to understand the distinction because the interface doesn't clearly tell you that's what it's doing. But that's what it's doing. All of which to kind of say, well, what do we do? If it's an Ethereum coin, which the vast majority are, there's not much you can do. Because it's inherent to the Ethereum contract that you have this structure of fees. And just to understand the reason behind the fees, it's the complexity of the work. But also NFT transactions, which you may have heard about, are spiking EFTs like crazy. There are coin burns that happen that spikes them like crazy. There are large purchases that spikes them like crazy. There's all these different things that are happening that spikes the fees at certain points. So you're never going to be able to get without waking up at like 1 a.m. A decent price and even then it's still somewhat high when you think about it so when you go to do crypto transactions you need to always budget an unknown amount of ethereum in order to support what you're wanting to do in your strategy you've got to plan it there you can't say i'm going to just buy a hundred dollars a sheep and call it a day no if you go to coinbase this is true because and they'll charge you a fee it's like two dollars Fine, but let's say that it's Saitama, and Saitama is not on Coinbase, and Saitama is not on Robinhood, and you can't access LBank, and so you say, well, how do I buy this? You could set up a software wallet, a DeFi wallet, even Coinbase wallet. I know it's stupid, but it's true. Any wallet that supports Ethereum tokens, and you could type in Saitama, and it'll say, all right, great, and then you go to Uniswap or whichever swap, and you say, First, you need to add Ethereum to this wallet. So you need to buy Ethereum. That's going to nail you with a minor fee. It doesn't matter how much you buy. It just whatever time of the day and however it feels like being, that's going to be the price. Usually that's going to be somewhere around 30 bucks to 80 bucks, depending on the time of day. So you buy this pool of Ethereum. So let's say you wanted to buy $100 worth of Satama and you plan to budget $100 of Ethereum to do the purchase. Fine. Follow me. So you buy the Ethereum for a hundred bucks. Okay. It's going to nail you, let's say a $40 fee, minor fee. So that 40 is going to cut into your Satama purchase and put you down to 60. So unless you find another 40 to replenish that, you're only going to get 60. At this point, you would only have gotten 60 Satama. 
let's say you don't have any extra money and you go to buy the Satami, you say, okay, 60 bucks is all it is. You go to the 60, it's going to nail you with an Ethereum fee. And I'm going to, depending on the time of day, it could easily be over the 60 and talk about 80, 90, 100. I've seen it. Let's say you hit it at the right time and it's going to be like 30 bucks. Now you're down to $30 of Satama. All because you just wanted to buy $100 of Satama. And you didn't end up buying $100 of Satama because you had to buy $100 of Ethereum, which then nailed you for a minor fee to buy that. Then you tried to buy Satama, which nailed you a minor fee to buy that, and you didn't have extra money to put in. So it's eating into what you would invest. If you've got money to throw at it, it's fine. Just know that you're always going to have this overhead of buying Ethereum to do the transaction if you don't have it any other way. Because when it's not in like Coinbase or something, you can't just go straight cash. You've got to buy some token and Ethereum is the cheapest to go straight to whichever coin if it's an Ethereum coin. Then you got to account for all the miners fees that go into getting the Ethereum, getting the whatever token you're trying to get, giving whatever authorization might be necessary. You're going to need to plan it and you can't really pre-project it because there are sites that tell you the gas price, but it doesn't translate it with the, all the other fees. So it's not telling you a dollar that you can plan on. My general rule of thumb is this. Plan 100% of whatever it is as overhead for fees. Plan 100% of that as overhead for currency. So if I want to buy $100 of Ethereum of, of Satama, I should have $100 of Ethereum and roughly $100 for gas. And I should be able to make it work. I just have to play with the time of day. Does that sound silly to you? You're investing 300 in order to get $100 of tokens? It should. But that's the current reality of crypto with the whole fee structure. And it's important you understand that because if you get in, you might be shell-shocked that you're actually spending more to recoup this on the back end.